I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Elvin Church. We are entering into week three of our series, I Struggle Believing in a God Who. And several weeks before we started this series, we, we gave everyone the opportunity just to anonymously submit um, either statements or questions about what they really sort of struggle with in their faith, in their walk with the Lord, and um, used those responses and kind of took the most common responses to help drive um, the trajectory and the themes and the topics uh, for this series. And so um, as we tackle this topic today, um, we have a guest with us who uh, is more uh, prepared um, and more qualified to talk on this subject than um, virtually anyone in the world. It's my great honor uh, and privilege to introduce Dr. Craig Blomberg, uh, who's a distinguished professor of New Testament in Seminary. Um, this is, in particular, one of the areas that he has written and researched uh, and contributed a lot to the discussion, and um, has has either authored or co-authored more than, uh, more than 20 scholarly books, um, and, and many of them dealing with this topic. I actually was looking through his publication bio before uh, the service started, because I was going to tell you how many like, scholarly journals uh, he had uh, done, and I couldn't count them all before service started, so it's a lot. Um, and those kind of details can be found on the faculty page of Denver Seminary's website if you're interested in some of the things that he has written and said, and uh, I'm actually going to highlight one in particular um, as we close out. So uh, it's my great honor and joy to be able to introduce um, Craig. Thank you. I've known Adam over the last couple of years and heard a lot about him. Now, I don't know whether to say you guys and you don't mind Midwest roots or you all can say that the transplanted Texans who said that it's not to souls at all. Um, but uh, it's a delight to get to know Adam. I'm sure you realize how sharp he is. He's been an outstanding student, um, but also a wonderful guy and a person of great integrity. I gather that this is one of these talks that was planned first and then fit into your series second. Because it was only this morning that I learned uh, that uh, the question was the struggle with God because called the Bible. It is possible that the people who said that or something like that had in mind a completely different set of questions than what I'm going to address. Because when you talk about problems in Scripture, where do you start? Where do you stop? The uh, people who have nothing better to do in life than create websites debunking the Bible, um, you can find those that say 1,000 errors in Scripture. And it's kind of ridiculous because they don't really have a sense of what an error even is. But um, this is a presentation, it's not a sermon. And I 
do that, but it's not what I was asked to do. And that said, at the very least, I hope can tantalize you with some possibilities that things aren't as bad as some of those website creators make it out to be. But I start with a question that I find is difficult even for some people starting at seminary. Especially if you didn't grow up in the church, especially if you didn't grow up in a Sunday school that taught uh, content of scripture. Ask a Christian, even after they've been Christian for a long period of time, tell me the story of the Bible in a nutshell. Well, you'll usually get something like, Jesus died for my sins, I can have the free gift of salvation, which is absolutely true, but not what the question asked. The question was, what's the story? What's the narrative? What's the plot? What happens from Genesis to Revelation. And so one night a few years ago, and I never revised it, so God creates the universe and humanity. Human free choice to rebel leads to alienation from God. God initiates a plan to bring us back to himself through Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt in the time of Moses, gives them laws to follow in response, and promises a fertile land for them to live in with peace and prosperity, contingent on their obedience to his law. After 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they conquer part of the land under Joshua. Israel is then led first by judges and then kings, over a united but later divided kingdom. Disobedience frequently leads to surrounding nations attacking Israel and even taking many of their people into exile, especially to Assyria and later to Babylon. But they are restored to the land and are promised a deliverer who will rid the land once and for all of foreign powers. Jesus of Nazareth, a first century Jew in Israel, shows many signs of being that quote-unquote Messiah or Deliverer, but declares spiritual liberation to be more important than physical liberation. He works miracles, fulfills prophecies, teaches wisely, loves the unlovely, but challenges the religious power brokers of his day. His movement seems to be extinguished, however, by his execution at the hands of Roman authorities. <clears throat> Nevertheless, his followers claim to see him alive again, begin to spread his message, worship him as God, and within one generation have established small house churches in most major parts of the empire. Those followers increasingly distinguish themselves from all existing religious options, are increasingly persecuted for doing so, but improve the lives of people and the morals of societies around them and await Jesus' 
second coming to right all the world's wrongs, vindicate his followers, vanquish his enemies, and usher in a recreated heavens and earth. Now that I can get excited about. But can I believe it? Or is it a fairy tale? Or a collection of ancient myths? And legends. It would be tempting to start in Genesis and go forward, and we wouldn't get out of the first two chapters. So I'm going to turn things upside down and go backwards. We have, in the New Testament, four accounts of the life of Jesus. Theological biographies called Gospels. One book of very selected acts of the first apostles, Jesus' followers. 21 letters from first generation Christian leaders to churches and individuals, and a book to rival any movie ever called Apocalypse Now that uh, you might choose to watch on Netflix. <laughs> there is an unbroken chain of evidence that starts in the second century with documents that you can go and view. The slide shows one page out of Second Corinthians. That's part of the Chester Beatty Papyrus Manuscript Collection, partly housed in Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland, partly housed at the University of Michigan. Go figure, I've never been to the University of Michigan, but I've been to Trinity College, Dublin, and uh, I've seen this. They're not allowed to take pictures, I had to go to a different site to do that. With picture, <laughs> authorized picture. We have copies and fragments of copies and entire books and fragments of books from the New Testament, nearly a hundred from the second century alone. And from those manuscripts, especially the letters of Paul and the information they contain about Paul's own autobiography and when he was where and what he wrote, letters that are not challenged, seven of Paul's letters have almost never been challenged even by uh, the most radical skeptics today in terms of their authenticity. We can determine, and there's very little scholarly disagreement on this, that these letters were written in the 50s. No, that's not the 1950s, that's just the 50s uh, of the first century. Within approximately 25 years of the death of Jesus, most likely predated to the year 30, 
We say AD, I first prepared this for a university presentation, and so I used the more neutral term CD, the common era for Jews and Christians uh, grew up, as it were, together. Paul's undisputed letters include 1 Corinthians, which includes a remarkable passage. Chapter 15, a long chapter on the resurrection, in which he lists the people who saw Jesus bodily raised from the dead, and he introduces the list in verse 3 by saying, For what I received, I passed on to you. Verbs that when paired in appropriate context usually refer to the accurate and at times even memorized oral tradition of communities telling their epic stories. Which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, he says already in verse 1, and then in verse 3 he says, as of first importance, or, an idea footnote tells me, or at the first, what he passed on and himself was taught at the first, at the very beginning of his life as a Christian, which we can also date, using the undisputed letters of Paul to within three years of Jesus' death. So we're back to the year 33. Within three years of Jesus' death, someone who became a Christian was already being taught that Christ died for people's sins according to the scriptures, the Old Testament, and that according to those scriptures, he was raised from the dead and here are a whole bunch of people, most of whom are still alive, that you can go talk and hear about their first-hand personal experience. That passage alone disproves any claim that the stories of Jesus were late, slowly evolving myths, maybe based on or Roman thought. No, Christianity was birthed out of Judaism and only encountered Greek and Roman thought um, a generation or so later. So, how do we go backwards? I don't have as long as a typical university class lecture goes. You're glad for that? <laughs> and we are going to get out on time. But uh, let me depart from the script, though you should be able to see there are points of contact at each step along the way. And just show some slides. I did bring popcorn, but sit back, relax, and no, I guess you can't do that in folded chairs. Well, <laughs> be creative. I'll, I'll just show you this entire. But from the book of Acts, 
and Paul's letters, first generation of Christian history, we can put together a remarkably coherent chronology of what happens in those New Testament documents. Within a year or two, and what's in black, we can date without ever looking at any Christian source, simply from other Jewish and Roman sources. And then based on the information in Acts and Paul's letters, we can fill in the gaps with what I've put in in red. I challenge you to find any collection of letters written independently and one book of history about any time or place, even considerably more recent than 2,000 years ago, but certainly that long ago, that enables you to reconstruct so detailed and consistent a chronology if the works are fiction. People just don't do that. Let me show you another slide and allow you to marvel. This is a map, you said, I came to church to learn that. It's a map of Greece and Turkey and little bits of Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. And if you're good, you can see part of Bulgaria today and Macedonia, etc. And I picked it almost at random, not quite, uh, of Paul's second missionary journey, simply to point out that every place in the Book of Acts that is mentioned, including in passing, and there are some 70 or 80 place names, we have found if we didn't have an unbroken record of information about them and know where they are. Now, if you study the Iliad and the Odyssey, and you read about the Trojan and Spartan Wars, those were real places. But the real places in Homer's epic literature are more the exception than the rule. There are a handful of real people in what he wrote about. But most of the people are fictitious and made up and don't appear anywhere else. Today we are familiar with a kind of writing that we sometimes call a historical novel or if it's on the screen, a docudrama, which means real people and real places are written about but then fiction is added in between. We do not know of anyone in the ancient Mediterranean world who ever did that. If you're writing fiction, there might be a veneer of some historical people or places, but most of it is not that. If you're writing history, you didn't make up things deliberately. You did your best to record what was actually there. Here's one more, if I can make it stay there. And these are just selected names of some of the best known people in places. I'm not sure I know all those. 
people and groups and names of leaders and names of commanders and titles of positions of authority found in the book of Acts, every one of which has been documented in non-Christian ancient I love it. After Paul goes to all these centers of urban life and meets proconsuls and magistrates and polycarps. And then he goes to the rustic island of Malta, not voluntarily, but by shipwreck. And Luke says, and the chief man there, almost like a Native American chief, and that's exactly what he was called. If Luke, a Gentile, were writing out of touch and as late as some of the skeptic claim, um, was able to put together all of these details that really are tangential in many cases to the main storyline, then his skill is unprecedented in the history of the world. It's more likely he was in touch with the facts and reported them reactively. And then we can take you on tour to Turkey and Greece. We do it every other year, right after school is out. In alternate years, we do Israel. This is an Israel year. You want to come with us? You don't even have to be a student to seminary. But for the three weeks and the potential academic credit that you can get, we don't even charge extra if you want academic credit. And it's the best buy for money. You can pay that much for one week with some pastor in a big church who doesn't always know um, all of the details accurately, unfortunately. So if you uh, have good eyesight and can read Latin and go the fourth line down, well, hey, that word's in English. How did that happen? Lystra. Oh, that's right. We got it from Latin. <laughs> One of the cities Paul goes to in Acts 13 that until early in the 20th century, People have never discovered, never found another reference to it. The critics said, oh, that must at least be fictitious. And then archaeologists dug up this uh, inscription and pieced it back together. And you can go to a museum in modern-day Konya in central Turkey. And the Muslim curator makes absolutely nothing about this. And another plaque next to it, you have to know it's there. And say, hey, folks, he's not going to tell you Come and, and let me show you the importance of this one. You can go to Philippi. Okay, it's kind of in writing condition today. But uh, you can go and see a place that uh, is a probable site of Paul's imprisonment. You can go to Athens and maybe somebody has spectacular ruins of uh, the Parthenon, the great temple that 
had uh, a ceiling high statue of the goddess Athena of wisdom. You can see some of the ancient Roman aqueducts further down. You go to Corinth, the little plaque that you can't read is the site where Gallio tried Paul and acquitted him and some of the Greeks rioted and beat up the Jewish synagogue ruler Sosthenes who had started all the problems. You can go to Corinth and while you're there see the last few letters of the word for synagogue in Greek, synagogue, and the first few letters of Hebraeus of the Hebrews and know where the Jewish synagogue was based, the figures in Acts story. And if you're rude, because it's not protected, and if you do it when the tour guide's not looking, you could even stand on the slab that says Erastus Proedile S.P. Stravid, which is Supicunium, uh, that means Erastus, the director of public works, laid this street at his own expense, and by golly, at the end of Romans, one of the people that Paul greets as he's writing from Corinth, that sends greetings from as he's writing from Corinth, is Erastus, the director of public works, buried in the closing greetings that we rarely ever read. And you can go to the partly restored and partly still standing theater in Ephesus. And you can stand down where that guy in the red is. And if you can project not much louder than I am right now, you can be clearly heard standing all the way at the top. They understood acoustics. And this is where uh, the riot occurred until Paul was spirited away to save his life. Just a drop in the bucket of what we could use by way of illustration. But now, go backwards a generation. Go backwards to the life of Jesus and to the four Gospels. What was it that they thought they were doing? Clear answer comes in the open four verses of Luke, that we call Luke chapter 1, 1 to 4. You can read it faster than I can read it out loud. And it reads like a preface or a prologue to ancient Jewish, Greek, and Roman history. There's not a myth or a novel or a romance, or the ancient equivalent of a sitcom, or called Greek comedies, or tragedies, that starts with this kind of prologue. This is what you wrote when you wanted to tell people you were writing history and that you had done your homework. You had interviewed eyewitnesses. You talked to other people who were those who were in charge of passing on the oral tradition of what happened. And this was a culture in which without anywhere close to the levels of literacy that we have, things were passed on orally. 
Illiterate people are not necessarily dumb. They just have a different way of recording and remembering things. And ancient Jewish and Greek speakers often memorized long speeches before they ever delivered them publicly. And Jewish boys going to synagogue school often had large chunks of what we call the Old Testament committed to them. And as you worked, as you played, as you harvested, as you worked on your crafts, you often sung to pass the time. And you sung scripture. And so when you put something to a tune and to rhythm and meter, you can remember a large amount of information. My girls have given me permission to tell the story of when they were in high school and middle school respectively. And I've lost count how many hundreds of times we heard the CDs from Man of La Mancha, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, and the Collected Works of Beckenfield. <laughs> And without ever intentionally memorizing them, there was a time when they could have sung lyrics and the tune to all of those CDs in their entirety. That's not quite as big as the Old Testament, but it's, it's an awful lot. It's certainly at least as big, if not bigger, than a single gospel. It was a different time and place. They didn't have the distractions that we had. They didn't have the sensory overload that we had. And we can put some dates up here. But what's interesting to me is what they agree on. Those are all first century dates. They're all 60 years of Jesus' death. Probably in which by ancient standards was a remarkably short period of time. And the youngest people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive in the 90s. I always find it humorous to see the skeptics that say, wait a minute, wait a minute, these Christians are nuts. We've determined that the average lifespan of somebody in the first century was about 45 years. Nobody could have lived until the 90s. It was an eyewitness. Had schools stopped teaching what the word average means? <laughs> it means that some people live a lot longer and some people live a lot shorter. And that if you average them, you come out with something in the 40s. We have ancient Roman records and Jewish records of people living to be a hundred. Not very many, not nearly as many as today, but it happened, and it happened in their 90s and their 80s and 70s, not to the same degree. And we can show all kinds of slides for uh, Jesus' life, for uh, Moses' seat, as it was called, in the uh, synagogue in uh, Chorazin. And uh, huge amounts of excavations in and around uh, the old city of Jerusalem 
that have allowed uh, archaeologists to reconstruct uh, what first century Jerusalem probably looked like in a uh, life-size, not life-size, but scale model uh, replica. And we can talk about, uh, yeah, just put them all up there. I'll quit using this and take over stop. Um, pools in John's Gospel that we didn't know about until a little over a hundred years ago. An inscription about Pontius Pilate. We hadn't found one before. Uh, a coffin with a, a nail through an ankle bone and a piece of wood. Somebody named Johann, a Jew. Uh, not found until 1968. A first century fishing boat, bigger than anything we knew existed, would have fit all 12 disciples and Jesus, and so the Jewish authorities have created a whole museum called the Jesus Boat Museum. Nobody knows whose boat it was, but they know how to get tourist shuffles. <laughs> we found the high priest tomb who presided over the Sanhedrin. We found what might be the small bone box or coffin of James, the brother of Jesus. The skeptics for centuries, for years, had been saying, we found stuff in Nazareth from the 3rd century BC, we found stuff in Nazareth from the 3rd century AD, but we don't know if Nazareth was settled in the 1st century. <laughs> True. That is the most common reason to have ruins from both periods of time. <laughs> but now we found them. And much, much more. But now we need to go backwards. And this will be nice. It's just one slide at a time and no animation. We need to go backwards to the period between the New Testament and the Old. The period that's been so greatly illuminated by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here's one of the caves in a site called Qumran, south of Jerusalem. And you can see how stuff stored in pottery at the back of the cave like that could remain hidden for a long time. Uh, no reason to do technical climbing there, no reason to find anything. And the great Isaiah scroll that was discovered with only a couple dozen insignificant differences from the next oldest known copy of Isaiah from a thousand years later. And we keep going backwards and into the Old Testament period of time of the writing prophets, like Jeremiah, whose scribe was named Baruch. And this is the seal that in the Hebrew cursive of the day identifies it as Baruch's seal, wax seal, put to seal some kind of a document. And we keep going backwards to Hezekiah's tunnel. And you can walk through it. But you probably should have uh, boots or something on. There's always water in it. And if it's been a wet year, um, it could be waist high. And you don't want to be claustrophobic. It's about a kilometer long, six tenths of a mile. But uh, a plaque that has that's what we call it, inscription, that's been removed and taken to museums, 
uh, made it clear that this was what the king Hezekiah had dug so that when Jerusalem was under siege, there was a secret tunnel on the outside to the, the pool of Siloam and the water could still be brought in for uh, the people's use. And we go back to the time of the United Kingdom. And it was only in the 90s, and this time I am talking about the 1990s, when an inscription about the house of David was discovered at the site of Dan in the north of Israel. And we keep going backwards. And no, we don't have Solomon's temple. It got destroyed, and the next one got destroyed too, and there's a mosque inconveniently in the way today. But this is an artist's reconstruction of it, which interestingly matches in the foundations what we have discovered in several neighboring regions. Because the people of Israel said, we want a king and we want a temple just like the nations had. And God let them do it. And we keep going backwards. And we come to Jericho, and Jericho has been excavated so much that anything of interest is in a museum somewhere. And you walk around and you go, it's just a bunch of rocks, this is boring. But it was a real city, it wasn't just destroyed once, it was destroyed several times. The biggest challenge for archaeologists to figure out which one is the destruction described in the book of Joshua. And we keep going backwards. And somebody says, yeah, but we've never found a reference to Moses. True. Where would you expect to find it? In the grassy marshlands of Egypt where nothing pre is preserved? Or in the wilderness wanderings in Sinai where nothing is preserved? But what was preserved were Egyptian hieroglyphics. And if you look carefully, you can see that those are not Egyptian soldiers, they're Jewish. You say, how do you know? Look at the beards. Egyptians were clean shaven. And so we have pictures of Egyptians using at least Semitic slaves to fight their wars, and then pictographs showing that at some point all these people disappeared. Is that the Exodus? We can't prove it. Sure sounds like it. We keep going backwards and we don't see much, except two rocks in the foreground. And no, we haven't found record of Abraham, but we haven't found records of people from 2000 BC very often anywhere. We haven't found them in North America. Mesa Verde is AD <laughs> in its day. But little places everywhere where ancient stones from some town or another jut out, and only the bigger and more significant ones when somebody's had funding and been excavated. The vast majority of all the evidence that could potentially eliminate the Bible has either been lost or remained buried. It's amazing as much as we found. Now, at some point, you keep going backwards. You just got to get a cartoon picture. <laughs> I mean, you expect Noah's Ark? <laughs> Analyzing things, 
up there in the ice in uh, in Turkey, but whether we'll ever know what they are or not, who knows? There are traditions on every continent of some kind of ancient worldwide flood. Maybe it's all independent mythology, but it is tantalizing. And certainly if we go to the last slide, there was nobody around for the creation of the universe to take a picture. But as my younger daughter, who is now uh, doing a PhD in molecular biology, we knew she was smart early on, said when she came home from great Sunday school class one day. Mommy, Daddy, I, I figured out creation versus evolution. Oh, really? <laughs> what are we going to have to <laughs> do damage control on now that she picked up from some elderly zealous Sunday school teacher? But it wasn't. Our biggest trouble was just keeping a straight face and not breaking out into laughter because she had no idea of the wonderful double meaning of her words, but what she said was, if there was a big bang, there had to be a big banger. <laughs> <laughs> Says about all, you really need to <laughs> Now, my watch, which I keep a couple minutes fast, deliberately, says 11.15. And when I ask Adam, at what point will people start really getting antsy if I don't stop, he said, well, you should aim for 11.15. I mean, if you take a couple minutes or more. I don't want to find out at what point you just stand up and start to walk out. And the worship team wants to do a song in closing. If none of that scratched, where you itch, Adam's words are wise. It does scratch where a lot of people itch. If there are other problems with Scripture that are your concern, and he can't answer them, or doesn't have the time because of all the work we pile on, but he's almost graduated and all <laughs> Email me. The answers are out there. It's up to you whether you find them convincing or not. But there is not a problem related to the contents of the Bible that, in my opinion, a plausible answer has not been suggested. And the people who think otherwise just haven't. What card now? Pray with me, would you?